This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. This series is presented by Lagoon. Unlock your optimal rest and recovery by going to lagoonsleep.com and taking the two-minute sleep quiz to find the Lagoon pillow matched to you. And be entered to win a Gen 3 Aura ring. Use the code LINDSAY, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, at checkout for an exclusive 15% off your first order. Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. So excited you're here today. Today, you're listening to the third episode in the New York City Marathon Recap Series, and my guest is Alephine Tuliamak. So excited for this episode with Alephine. She is one of my all-time favorite guests on the podcast. Alephine won the Olympic trials in 2020 in the marathon, and she actually came on the show right after that, episode 234. She was also on the show, episode 229 the day before those Olympic trials, and she was also on the show episode 165 when I first interviewed her in 2019. She recently ran the New York City Marathon, placing the top American in seventh place, and she snuck in a little PR at the race. She ran 226.18 at that race, and since we last talked on this podcast, Alephine had a baby, and Her baby, Zoe, is almost two years old. So in this episode, we talk a lot about how life has changed, postpartum running, what life was like before the Olympics, after the Olympics, and her very short training cycle leading into New York. I love the message Alephine is sending to women everywhere about motherhood. She is giving us a realistic view of what a comeback really looks like. I love that she didn't rush back into running after having her baby. And I think that that's something not every professional runner had the privilege of doing even a few years ago. So some big changes have been made and sponsors are, let's say, being a lot cooler these days. I'm really excited for the opportunities uh, she's had and so excited for her career and what's next for her. If you love this series, please leave us a quick rating and review on iTunes or Spotify so that potential new listeners can find us. And if you enjoyed this conversation with Alphine, go send her a message on Instagram and let her know that you loved hearing from her. She is just Alphine on Instagram, A-L-I-P-H-I-N-E. All right, friends, enjoy my conversation with Alphine. All right, today back on All Have Another Podcast, we have Alephine Tuliamuk on the show. Welcome back, Alephine. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's been a while, huh? It's been a while. I mean, you came back on the show after you won the Olympic trials. I know that for sure because I was like, I might have begged your agent. I was like, I have to get Alephine back on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, at least I came back after the, you know, after the trials because that was important. Yeah, that was super special since we did the interview right before and then we got to do the one right after. So, you know, and then you had a baby, you actually went to the Olympics, like lots of things have happened in your life. So um, I also wanted to give you space too. like you have a lot going on. I appreciate that. I mean, as you already know, with life, you never have a time where you don't think there's a lot going on, but there was definitely a lot happening, you know, after the Olympics. So I'm, I mean, after the trials and the Olympics and all that. So I'm glad that you waited. Thank you. <laughs> so congratulations on a great run in New York. Thank you. Yeah, that was definitely fun. And I got to see you too after. So that was a treat. Yes, I was so excited to see you at Steph's event. And I loved your outfit. It was beautiful. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's funny. I used to joke that... um. I was ready to go to New York and party. So I had my outfit and my daughter and I were matching. And I'm like, I really hope that I remember my racing kids. I remember my <laughs> racing shoes because I feel like I'm going, like I'm ready for the party. Because, okay, this is a funny story. So back in June when I ran the mini 10K, I actually went to New York with training shoes for one foot. <laughs> and they were completely different colors. 
And it was like, but then I had my after party, uh, you know, after race party shoes. I had those perfectly ready. And it was like, so I wasn't ready to race. I was just there for the party. So I was like, okay, for the marathon, I cannot get away with that. (laughs) Okay. You know what, though? I'm just so curious your thoughts on this. Obviously, you take things seriously. You can't run at your level if you don't. But there's something about the way you go about this that is lighthearted and almost carefree. Would you say that? (laughs) I think it comes off that way, but I am actually very, very serious. I mean, it's like, for example, going into New York for several months, I just kept visualizing and and really wanting to perform. But I think it's the way I communicate to the outside world that always comes up as carefree, you know, lighthearted. I do like to make things, um, you know, like funny if mm-hmm. I can, just because I think like not taking things too seriously, at least sounding that way um, is fun. But I do take it really, really seriously. Like, I, I don't think a lot of people know that about me. I think a lot of people just see me as this fun person. And But I do take it very seriously. Like, again, like, for example, after before the Olympic trials, remember that live uh, podcast um, that we had. And I was like, you know, it's just running. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I, was, like I was like, it's just running. You know, there's more to life than running. But it wasn't that I wasn't serious about running. Obviously, I was really thinking about making that Olympic team. But at the same time, I also recognized that, there's more to life than running, you know, like running is just a chapter in your life. And especially as I get older, you know, like I don't want to put all of your, I mean, I never was like that anyway, but I don't want to put my worth and everything into running. I want to know that there's room for more things in my life that is not running related. And I think that's what a normal person does. It's like, you don't like work for you. is not everything. Like, Work life is not your whole life. Mm-hmm. You have other things. You have a family life. You have, you know, social life. And I want to do that, especially in the running world, because I feel like most of us, most of us professional athletes, running is the most important thing, and it should be. But at the same time, I think it, we have been made to think that that is the only thing that matters, and that because you are professional running, in order to be a serious runner, you can have a social life, you can have, you know, a family life. And so for me. I see running as just a chapter in my book mm. and I try to, you know, like have fun and enjoy these other things too. And so I think it kind of comes off as I don't care, but I really do care. I'm a very serious runner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you have to be with what you did in New York and what you did at the Olympic trials. And, you know, when I talked to you after New York, you said the heat didn't bug you. And I just was blown away by that. You know, I think so. Growing up in Kenya and, um, you know, studying running when I did, all the professional runners that I encountered were always dressed in tracksuit. And so they would be going out for runs, you know, whether it's uh, warm months, they will be dressed fully in tracksuit and tights inside. And so, like, that's how I got into running. Like, I would be overdressing every day. And Mm. so I think that for most of the year, I'm always overdressed. Like, seriously, you will see a picture of me and my teammates and I have my long tights and a jacket and they're like in shorts and like a bra. Mm. And so it's like I'm used to training, um, you know, when like I'm used to training of a dress. And so I think with New York, even though it was very warm, I was used to like overdressing. But also at the same time, you know, like that week leading up to the race, I like once we realized that it was going to be warm, like, for example, in New York, I ran three days, uh, the two days that I was there, I actually ran on the treadmill overdressed like fully overdressed once everybody else went to bed and I don't usually do that Hmm. but also what I did was I my fueling on course was on point I was fueling really really well and I just acknowledged you know that it was going to be hard and I just changed my attitude but also I think I also have had success when um, the temperatures are warmer like, for example, this summer when I ran the 25K champs, it was actually kind of right around, except it was sunny, but it was, I think it was as bad as New York. And so I've never really believed that I can run well when it's hot and humid. But I think time and again, I have just changed my attitude and the results have been good. So it was funny that way. And it's like, even when I go outside, I get cold really easily. I always tell my, I always joke that I am, uh, and I'm, I am like a human ambition. Like <laughs> I just have cold blood, just because I get cold really, really easily. But I think I'm now beginning to realize that I can handle the heat better, and that's a good thing because, as you might have seen, the 2024 Olympic trials are going to be in Orlando, Florida, yes. which is very hot and muggy. So 
I have good things going for me. Yes. Um, so when you're training like regularly, not, you know, I know you mentioned being on the treadmill a few days before and you are overdressed. Is that strategic or is that just what you're comfortable in? It's just what I'm comfortable with for the most part. Okay. Um, wow. So Alephine, I haven't even talked to you on a podcast since you became a mom and I watched the skim video that was put up. Was that today or yesterday? Which is awesome, by the way. Uh, it was awesome. That was a couple of days ago. It was awesome, except I was like, breathe, Alfin, it fell. I mean, it was, all, it was just like little piece of, pieces of video. But it was like, oh, my God, I'm not breathing. I'm just talking nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Although I do talk a lot and I talk fast. So, but yeah. <laughs> I think that that video is really impactful. Whoever put it together did a really good job because it hits the really important points. And you do a really good job sharing, like, actually what it looked like coming back postpartum because you are right like a lot of professional mothers who run either did come back too early because they felt like you know pressure to or whatever and and then your doctor clears you and you think okay I can just go but you are so smart to say no like I can't actually you know, I would have to say this, Lindsay, like when I got pregnant and had my daughter, I was in a really good place because of the women that came before me. Mm. Because of what Alicia Montaigne, Carol Gouger, and even Alison Felix did, you know, coming out with their stories of how their their sponsors treated them when they were when they decided to have maternity leave, I think that I might have actually been like um, the highest profile professional athlete that was treated really, really well. Mm. And so for me, I had the room and freedom to take care of my body, take care of myself. Because if you listen to Kara Gouger's story, she had to go run seven days after she gave birth. And I am like six weeks after I gave birth, there's no way I could have done that. I went for a walk 14 days after I gave birth with my husband because my mother-in-law was watching our daughter. And I remember just like, I couldn't keep up. I was just like, it was awful. And it was just like a half a mile of 0.6 or 0.7 like miles of a walk. And it was really hard. And so to think that Kara Gouger had to run seven days after she gave birth because of her contract obligations, that I, I just can't even imagine how that was like. And so like for me, it was not just the fact that I was able to listen to my body. It was that I had the room, I had the freedom, and I had a complete support from my sponsors and everybody around me, my coaches, my managers. They understood that it was me driving the ship. And mm -hmm. they gave me that time to, you know, like they gave me the opportunity to take time off. Now, I will say this, you know, like even though I waited for, you know, um, eight weeks, I look back now and I still think eight weeks was still too soon. Hmm. But then again, there was this internal pressure from myself to get back into running, to get ready for the Olympics. Just because like when I won the trials, you know, I was very proud and I really wanted to represent my country like really, really well. And then the pandemic hits and, you know, like I decided to take a family, you know, like leave. And it was awesome, by the way. And hopefully I'll talk about that later. But like it was also like, I did not want to let my country down. And like, you know, like my coaches, my managers, nobody was pushing me to get started training right away. But there was this internal pressure to be ready for the Olympics. And so like I look back now or even like a few months after, you know, like um, I started running and I'm like, if I could do it all over again, I honestly think that I would have waited a few more weeks to start running because I had this pain, you know, on. Um, like when I first of all, when I was like about eight weeks pregnant, I had this pain on like uh, my lower abs or like sores, mm. kind of like maybe right around the round leg where your round ligament will be. And that pain persisted throughout my pregnancy. And then after I gave birth, you know, it was really bad. And I remember when I went on my first run, it was painful and it was painful for a really, really long time. But it got better, you know, like I would actually say that week seven to eight. And week 11 was the turning point for me. Like, I remember this shirt pain that I had. Like, at six weeks, I felt like literally my organs were going to fall out. Mm. But then at eight weeks, I felt so much better that I went out for runs. But then I had this shirt pain that was so bad. But then week 11, that pain went away. It wasn't sharp anymore. You know, like, I still had a lot of, like, discomfort, mm -hmm. but it wasn't bad anymore. And so, like, if I had to do it all over again, I would have definitely waited until that pain went away. You see, like, there are people that don't even run for their 
jobs. They just run for fun that need to hear that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I like even 10 years ago when I had my first baby as an everyday runner, I would put the pressure on myself. But I felt like at six weeks, of course, I'm going to run. My doctor cleared me. Why wouldn't I? And I think the changes that have been made in communication and education in those 10 years since I had my first baby are wildly important. And I'm so glad they're here. You know, I think that somebody that played a very big role to me, and I want to shout out, I'll give a shout out to her, is Sarah Tenta. She's a pelvic floor therapist. And yes. um, she actually told me that you're going to go see your doctor at six weeks and she will probably tell you that you're ready to run. But I don't want you to run until eight weeks. And to be honest with you, I think that without her advice, I probably would have tried to run at six weeks and I was feeling awful. And so she really helped me back. And she even told me, she said, if you didn't have the Olympics coming up, I would recommend that you stay for 12 weeks. Mm. And so I think that having people like that advocating for women is very, very important. So I would definitely say pelvic floor therapies are very important when coming back postpartum. But also at the same time, it's like we live in a society where getting pregnant and having a child, people just don't realize how hard that is. Like for your body, that is a huge trauma to your body and you need to heal. But I feel like, and it's funny because like I even felt this like when as soon as the baby is born, all the attention shifts from the mom, Mm -hmm. the mom that was pregnant to the baby. And suddenly, like, I mean, like, it's like when you give birth to a baby, you like your body is like completely broken. But now suddenly you have to tend to this little baby and it's like you can barely walk. And so I think that in our society, I wish we could move from, you know, like shifting attention from the mom to the baby right away. And again, I say like, I mean, the, the baby is the most vulnerable one at that time. But I also would hope that we could realize that the moms that just went through carrying a child for nine months and giving birth, they are also very vulnerable. And so it's like you are expected by society to be able to spring up into action in six weeks and run and, and go back in shape. And it's like, no, that's not how real life works. Even for me, as a professional runner who ran throughout my pregnancy, getting like training again, it took several months before I actually looked like I could be a professional runner again. And again, that is mom body. Like, there's no shame in that, but I feel like we live in a culture where, like, you are expected to just push a baby out and then get back to shape, you know, like nothing happened. Yeah, I'm curious. Because the other piece to that, aside from the physical piece, is, like, the hormone piece. It's your your body yeah. <laughs> is changing so much. And, like, I don't know about you, but, like, anything would make me tear up or cry or feel like I was failing for no reason other than like my hormones are all out of whack. Did you experience that? I, well, I am traditionally a very emotional person. Um, so I don't even know where me being usually emotional starts and Mm, stops mm -hmm. to where like being a mom is emotional. But I would say though that I think the one thing that I realized now as a mom is that I get stressed out really, really easily over the smallest things. And if I have something, you know, small happening, I just get really stressed out and I just cry. Mm. And I never used to have that. Like I get emotional really quickly and I just, and I get confused. And once I do that, it's like I can't even function. And so, yeah, like the hormones definitely do play a very big role. But like just to use someone else's story, like, you know, I have had a couple of women where like who are like who are professional runners and they're Olympians. And they have struggled, you know, like uh, during pregnancy with, you know, the body, the physical body mm-hmm. and the hormones. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I know that I am strong because I'm a professional runner. And I know that what I am doing, what my body is doing is an amazing thing. But it doesn't take away from the fact that I am living in a body that I don't recognize. So, yes, the hormones are definitely, you know, they make you somebody else. For sure. Uh, so I got to meet Tim in person for the first time. Oh, yay. In New York. Yeah. And he is hilarious and wonderful. And it seems like a really great partner in this for you. Tim is amazing. I mean, I honestly wouldn't be able to do what I do without Tim. Like, I always said, I mean, ever since we've been together, like he is so selfless that Mm. I am still trying to figure out how one person can be as selfless as he is. Like, I don't think that if the roles were reversed, I honestly don't think I could do a 16th 
of what he does for me, you know, to support me. And so, you know, I am not complaining and I'm so grateful and I'm like, I am so glad that the roles don't actually have to be reversed <laughs> because I don't think I could be good. And I don't want him to know that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, he, Tim is awesome. He is he's an amazing partner. He's an incredible dad. And when it comes to my running, my goodness, I mean, like, 99% of what he does to support me is the reason why I am the person that I am today. And I, you know, I could only wish that every single person has that person in their life, whether you're a professional runner or not, because having a partner that is, in there for you is awesome and i honestly hope that someday i'm gonna be you know like an eighth of a partner to him that he is to me i bet you're better than you realize i bet you're not giving oh, yourself enough credit oh i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know actually i'm like me no but i'm good you know i'm not saying that i'm bad but i'm just like no 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 not on that partnership and i think i'm a little selfish um how old is zoe now She's almost two, actually. Uh, she's going to be two in January, uh, on January 13th. So she's only two months away from being two or less than two months. She is so stinking cute. And very uh, devious. Oh, my <laughs> but gosh. But in a good way, in a good way. I think she's going to be able to stand up for herself. She's very, I would say, I mean, and, and I think maybe that's just babies that age, you know. She's so cute. And I've actually said that. I think they make babies cute intentionally so that when they become super devious, you can give them away because you're like, oh, but she's so cute. <laughs> like, she's so stubborn in a good way, I guess. But, like, she will do something and I'm like, Zoe, no, you can't do that. And she's like, hi. And I'm like, how can I not let you do what you wanted to do <laughs> once you say hi to me and smile at me like that, you know? Oh, you're so. entering the best time, though. I mean... People will say, oh, you know, like toddlers are so difficult, whatever. But like, screw that. Toddlers, yes, they're difficult. But like that they are the cutest, like their personalities and they're starting to say all the words and put sentences together. And like, ah, it is like freeze that cuteness because it is the best. It sure is. Like she started um, actually was I just feel like. That week we went to New York and ever since then she's just grown so mm -hmm. much and I can't handle it. Like she was like, mommy. And then once she says mommy and I'm like, oh, you can do whatever you want when you call <laughs> me mommy. And then she's like, yesterday I was like, I love you. And she's like, I love you. And it's like, oh, my baby's saying I love you back. So she can definitely, you know, she has a pre-pass for a day. Yes. For a minute. <laughs> uh, so you and Tim went back to Kenya and had like an official traditional wedding ceremony when when was that was that last summer or this past summer no actually that was uh, uh last winter we went in fact we left for kenya um right around this week a year ago and our traditional wedding was actually on new year's eve okay tell us about that a little bit how awesome was it yeah um that was amazing i mean the only um, downside to that was our friends weren't able to come because we had like six friends from the U.S. that were supposed to come to our wedding, but because of the Omicron, mm. they weren't able to come. So Tim was the only, you know, one there. And that was kind of sad because, you know, there's a language barrier. And when you get married, you want your best friends to be there for yes. you and they weren't able to be there. But on the other hand, though, I will say that my family and, you know, the guys that married into my family, because, again, I come from a very big family, we have a lot of guys that have married into the family and, you know, that I'm married into my cousins' families. And so, like, they stepped up big time and they were, like, his family. So he had an awesome support. And the wedding, I mean, I would say that he was the most handsome Pokot man I've ever seen and Pokot mm -hmm. is my tribe and he was dressed up as a man like one of the guys from my tribe and man I when I saw okay so they covered me up and then they walked me into this you know like um a tent where like the reception and then he had to come over and uncover me there was three of us and I was in the middle and I didn't even know that I was sitting in the middle and so he had to come and select among the three of us who you know, which one was his wife. And so that was really fun. Everybody had a kick out of that. <laughs> and then when he found me, which I, by the way, I helped him cheat. I kind of like squeezed his hand when he like touched my mm -hmm. knees. Uh, like I was like, 
it's me, you know. And so, but when like he uncovered my face and I saw who he was, it was it was beautiful, and I cried oh. and I ruined my makeup for the whole day. And as someone who doesn't wear makeup, that was not very fun. <laughs> oh my goodness, how beautiful! And probably so. Was that the first time you've been home, and how long? Um, I, that was the first time I had been home since the uh, the beginning of 2017 because I went home um, at the end of 16, beginning of 17, came back. And so I hadn't been home for a while. And actually, in fact, Tim and I were going to have an impromptu trip to Kenya right after the Olympic trials. In fact, we were going to go to Boston Marathon as ambassadors and then fly to Kenya. But, I mean, the pandemic, you know, like they mm-hmm. shut down everything. And so we weren't able to go to Kenya in 2020. So that had been the first time since 2017. All right, everybody, a quick break here to thank Lagoon for supporting this podcast. Listen, there is nothing more important to me than a good pillow. I say that very boldly. I have spent a lot of time researching pillows in my day, and this is your answer. If you wake up groggy with a stiff neck or back or your pillow's just not satisfying you, Lagoon's performance pillows are designed to meet the needs of all types of sleepers, so you can fall asleep in eight minutes and stay asleep for eight hours. Lagoon's proven process includes matching people with their ideal pillow and then allowing you to add or remove fill so that you can sleep comfortably and with proper alignment. Okay, so go to lagoonsleep.com to get started. Use the code Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y at checkout for an exclusive 15% off your first order. Own your rest. Lagoon. All right, friends, back to the show. So New York City, you had a great race. You even squeaked in a little PR on, you know, like we've talked about, a really hot day. Do you feel good? Like, are you (laughs) super satisfied? I am, you know, like I, I, I am definitely satisfied, you know, about the results of the day. But at the same time, you know, like, as a professional athlete who wants more, I really, really wanted to do better. And honestly, like I look at the results now, like, I mean, I was left like the pack, the second pack who ended up producing the winner in the second and the fourth place was actually running with me after 16 miles because the three girls uh, broke away or the three women broke away right around 16. And then there was four of us running or five of us running together. But then at some point right around, um, you know, 18 or so, uh, miles, um, the three women that I was running with broke away from me and I was left in no man's zone. And I think I thought I was going to catch up to them after I took my, uh, my after I got my 30K uh, fluids, but I never was able to catch up. And then it's like, they just kept feeding off of each other and they, they ended up, you know, catching the front pack and, you know, producing the winner, like I said, and second and fourth. So I think I was disappointed in the sense that I was with that group. Mm. And I could have done so much better if only I had held on, you know, to them a little bit longer. But in as far as the rest of the day was, actually, I was very, very happy. Um, And let me give you a little context. So um, at the beginning of September, I was diagnosed, uh, actually, it was September 8th when I was diagnosed with, um, you know, like basically a stress reaction Mm. on my uh, medial malleolus bone, basically my one of my angle bones. And so from the beginning of September until mid-September, I wasn't running. Hmm. And I that was the beginning of my buildup. That was like I lost three big workouts that I, that would have helped me, you know, do better. But again, you never know. But in my mind, I'm like, I wish I hadn't, lo- I didn't lose those weeks. And so when I came back and started training because I, um, I saw different specialists and eventually we figured out that. It, uh, my hips were rotated and once they were rotated back to normal, I was able like, you know, the stress reaction was able to heal and I was still able to run without making anything worse, which was awesome. So I got back to running. But the thing was, I only had five weeks of marathon training before tapering for the two weeks. Wow. In fact, in fact, two weeks before the race, I asked my coaches, I said, could you guys let me like, sort of usually two weeks before the race, we do a 15-mile steady state, mm. and that is the last big workout of um, of the segment always. And we do that steady state on marathon, you know, like marathon effort, basically, to see if you're able to handle, if you can handle that pace for 15 miles, and then 
most likely you're going to be able to do well in the race once you've um, tapered. And so I asked my coaches if we can move that 15-mile steady state, you know, like three weeks, I mean three days uh, back, that would have been 10 days before the race or like 11 days so that I could do a long run. I wanted to do, like I told them, I said, I want to do a 24-mile long run of just going out and back and just progressing, nothing crazy, but just to know that I can handle 24 miles. Because again, I did do a build-up, you know, leading up to the Tokyo Olympics, but then I was in a different, you know, stage of my life, coming back from pregnancy. But aside from that, I hadn't done a marathon training since 2020, leading up to the Olympic trials. I hadn't done, like, I, I, in fact, my first 21-mile long run happened, you know, like, during this build-up. And so it was like, I was like, I don't know that I can run 26 miles because I haven't done that in two and a half years. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have time. And so my coaches talked among each other and they were like, you know what, Alfin, at this point, if you decide to do the long run and do the 15 mile steady state, you know, 10 days out, it may not help you. And right now, we just have to believe that what you've done is going to be good enough to uh, get you the results that we are looking for. And so I was like, okay, if you guys think that's the right call, then that's fine. And so coming into New York and running a PR, it was just like, I mean, we went through halfway faster than I've ever run a marathon. It was a 224 pace. And I'm like, I am definitely hmm. probably going to pay for this, especially on a tough day, on a tough course. So, yes, yeah, so in that respect, yes, I was very, very happy. And I was also happy that Emma Bates, who was behind me, didn't catch me because I think if Emma Bates had caught me, I would have been even more disappointed. Yeah. And once people catch you, you start feeling like sorry for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you went with what your coaches said, you, you just trusted them. I had to, I mean, it's like, and, and I will have to go back a little bit. The reason, like, so one of the mistakes I made going into Tokyo Olympics was I would read what people said on social media Mm. about me not being ready, you know, to mm-hmm. run at the Olympics, and that will really fire me up. That will light a fire under me, and then I will do things that weren't even on my schedule. Like, for example, I would do, you know, like um, a second run when there wasn't supposed to be a second run, or I would add two miles to my second run so I can get my mileage up. And I think it's that um, additional miles that really hurt me, that, that got me injured two weeks before the, the Olympics. And so this time round, I knew that I needed to listen to my coaches and do what they thought was best for me because, one, if things were to go wrong in New York, you know, I, I couldn't blame anybody. And I, I didn't even have the liberty of having things go wrong um, in New York just because I hadn't done a marathon in a long time. And also, you know, trying to be coachable. Um, yeah, I think that's so important. No, it is, it is. It is important to be coachable, you know, and I talk about that a lot, but I would also say that I think there are times where I'm like, oh, I feel good. I could add a mile or two here and there, but I mean, I think that a mile or two occasionally is okay, but then when you're chronically doing the wrong things, then that is a problem. Yeah, and it makes me sad that, like, people were, A, saying that and, B, getting to you because, you're about to compete on like the biggest stage of your career and to have like that negativity in your head had to be really stressful. It was. And you know what though, again, like I keep saying life is more than sports. It's like when people are behind a keyboard, they don't really care about Mm. what they're saying. And on their end, at the same time, it's like, People look at athletes uh, like they don't realize that behind those names are real people and they have their feelings hurt. And so people would always say really mean things, you know, like about athletes, like, you know, think about football players, for example, if they are playing and somebody does a mistake and it's like the fans and then the team loses the, you know, the match, the fans will go crazy and they will say really mean things and even threaten the person who made a mistake. As I feel like a lot of times when you're a public figure, People don't realize that behind that big name is a real human being with feelings just like you. And so, like, they were saying that. I don't even think they were thinking about what they were saying. It's like they look at you as a source of entertainment. And, yes, sports is entertainment. But it's also, like, someone's life is on the line. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel so fortunate that I get to host this podcast and, like, get to know people like you. because, And I hope that when people listen to these stories and hear athletes talk, they feel 
like connected and they feel like they get it and they get who you are a little bit more holistically than just seeing you run a 226 marathon in New York City. Yeah, and and in the same way here, I feel like I hope that we are able to communicate, or at least I hope that I'm able to communicate myself to the point where somebody can feel relatable. You know, like, for example, when you talk about postpartum stuff, every woman who's had a child feels that. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when people see you run a marathon so fast, they think you are superhuman, but I'm like, no, I'm actually not superhuman. I'm just performing well at my job, just like you would, because you're hosting this podcast. I wouldn't be able to host a podcast like you do. You're very good at what you do. All of us have talent talents and you know that compiled with hard work we can do really really well in our jobs and so it's like I do well but I'm actually not necessarily different from you yeah can you tell me a little bit more about like that return to running because you know I remember in that video too from skim the skim that you posted like not only did you wait longer than your doctor told you you could but you, it was also really hard when you started. And that is such a challenging feeling to go on that first run and be like, whoa, my legs feel like they have weights on them. And my <laughs> stomach still feels like it's like, you know, four months pregnant. You know, I mean, it was tough. And, and it is really, really hard um, in that moment to think that, oh, yeah, this too shall pass. And I've been, you know, I've, I've been really happy that Molly Huddle has been sharing, you know, like a postpartum journey too, because you see that and it's like, that is normal. But when you're in that situation, you don't feel like that was normal. I mean, there were so many times where I went out for a run and I was like, I don't even know why I'm doing this. It's just so hard. Like my first run, I ran um, almost 19 minutes for two miles because my first run was um, two miles and it was hard. I was like, I don't think I can do this. And funny thing, one of my neighbors who who knew that I um, had won the Olympic trials, one day he saw me running and he said, how far are you going? And I said, maybe just a mile. And it's like, how fast? And I'm like, well, you know, if I can run eight minute pace, you know, that would be good. He's like, that is not going to get you to run well at the Olympics. <laughs> and I'm like, I know you're right, but I just had a baby, you know, and I can't. There's no cheating your way out of this. It's like you have to follow the process. And that is the one thing. Being a mom or postpartum running humbles you. It literally makes you realize just how fortunate you are to be fit and healthy because it's like you go back to zero. And like I said, I have loved following Molly's um, journey because it's like you see her take baby steps start from zero to now where she is, she's like, oh, yeah, things are beginning to feel better now. So part of the reason I think um, myself and moms, um, professional athletes that are moms now are willing to share our story is, for one, that it's now allowed. You know, it's now viewed as a good thing. But also it's like when I was going through it, there wasn't anything to uh, compare it with. There wasn't someone else who, who was running at a high level who said, yeah, that was normal. Like, I wish I had people, I wish I had so many stories to relate to when I was coming back or even when I was pregnant. And so I'm hoping that by sharing my story and other people doing the same thing, you know, like five, ten years from now, new moms will be like, oh, yeah, this is normal. You know, they won't have to freak out and go to bed crying because they, they feel like they're not making progress because, you know, suddenly, you know, like now you have so many other women who shared their stories and they were able to come back and run awesome. So I'm hoping that by doing this, you know, hopefully we are helping future moms. Yeah. And I mean, thank God sponsors are finally coming around to seeing the bigger picture and seeing that this is actually the story to tell and the story to celebrate, not forcing women back into something their body's not ready for. You know, as you talk about it and you brought up Kara's story over and over again, I mean, this is a much smaller scale, but I remember when I got pregnant with my first son, um, I worked for a very small kind of early nonprofit and everybody was very young that worked there. And I was the first employee <laughs> to, to have a baby. Like uh -huh. they didn't know what to do with me. And it was almost like, instead of like, oh my gosh, congratulations. It was like, I could see them freaking out like, oh shoot, what the heck are we going to do? Like, and how long is she going to want to be gone? And will she want to get back? And if anything, it kind of derailed my passion to want to get back because I didn't feel super supported. Um, and I think that's because it was a really young company and they just didn't know how 
to handle it. So I hope that all companies like aside of sports as well are handling this better these days because it's kind of scary to be like, yeah, I'm going to have a baby and be gone for 12 weeks, but I actually really want to come back and still be a part of this. No, absolutely. And it's funny because, um, I think again, it was because of the time that you were in. I think that Mm -hmm. a woman today who wants to have a baby, is more understanding, but even like in our sport, like again, like, so a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast. I don't even remember who Molly was talking to. Actually, it might've been Ali on the run. And she was talking about like, she brought up, you know, the idea of a maternity coverage to her sponsor a few times back, you know, before she even thought about having a baby. And her company was like, like, basically, she said, like, she doesn't even think it made it that far um, a high after management just because it was like nobody did this and it wasn't even something that anybody thought about. She, In her own words, she said it was like, if I said in my contract, I want a Ferrari, they would be like, uh, what? <laughs> That's not even something that people ask for. But now, you know, like, it's like I think most athletes, even like those that are coming out of college, I think that, you know, in their contract, if you're a female athlete, they'll be like, yeah, there's a pregnancy clause because, you know, the women that have come before us have made that possible. And so it's like, I think everything just goes with time, you know, and the awareness that has has been made. And I'm definitely grateful to be living in a time where it's okay to be pregnant and and talk about it. And it's okay to want to come back because I will tell you this. I absolutely feel like I am the best artist I've ever been. I feel like I am faster than I've ever been in my entire life coming back, you know, after having a baby. And it's like so many runners have done that. So like the world record, um, you know, holder on the marathon on the women's side is a mom, Mary Kay Tan, who won New York time. I mean, who won New York City Marathon, I think four times. Is a mom. She's a mom of two. Edna Kiplaka, mm. who is defying all art and still kicking butt at 42 years of age is a mom of two. And so it's like women have always gone back, you know, after having babies, professional, you know, runners especially have gone back and ran really, really well. But it's just that no one was really focusing on these women. It's not a new thing, but I'm so glad that now we are at a point where we realize that having a child is actually you know, a good thing. It's an advantage as a female athlete because I don't, I don't know that there's any scientific proof, but I will say that as in my opinion, I really think that having a child seriously improves your performances. I don't know why or how, but I'm just like, even last year when I was training for the Olympics and I was so new, you know, postpartum, I was running fast and I wasn't even like fit enough to be running those times, but I was shocked. I was like, I have no business running these Mm. times right now, but I am running them. And so I think that there's something to be said about having a kid and then going back to competing. And so I'm glad that we are able to do that now openly. Yeah. As you said that, I was thinking about this is like, um, you know, more relatable to the everyday runners here probably. But like even on that level, I think about anytime I go race something, I remember those first marathons I raced after my first son, especially like new mom, you know, everything feels new. Um, I remember it was nine, nine or 10 months postpartum. I was at in Virginia and I, you know, we had traveled there away from my son. He stayed with my mom for three nights to run this marathon and like not give it everything you have. And so I kept reminding myself of that, like, you know, my like, 20, 23, when I really wanted to slow down and it hurt so bad, I was like, Marshall is at home and that's fine. He's safe and he's with people that love him, but like run a little bit harder for him. And I don't know if that's just like a maternal thing, but I feel that even at the level that I run at. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely true. And that's like you said, that's the one thing that at least we, you know, we can all relate. And I've always told people, you know, like just because I run 26 miles you know, faster than you do does not mean that I am better than you. It does not mean that I'm more worthy than you. It's mm-hmm. like we are all runners. As long as you're running that race, as long as you're getting out and running, we are all runners. It just happens that some of us actually get paid to do it. So we have to work harder. But also some of us might be more talented than others. But we are all runners. And I think we can all relate in, you know, in the sense that we are all runners. And we feel the same pain that the other person feels running a four-hour marathon and running a two-hour marathon, you still the same amount, feel the same amount of pain. 
Yeah. So where, question, where was Tim on the course? Was he just at the finish line in New York? I think he was just, yeah, I think he was just at the finish line because, you know, he was hanging out with Zoe. So yes, they were just at the finish line. Okay. And in New York, what were your like things that you told yourself when it got really hard and you wanted to slow down? Speaking of those mental thoughts that enter our minds at mile 20. First of all, let me just start by saying that I am not, um, what is the word? I am not that person that has words to tell myself for the most part when I do that, it stresses me out. Mm. But I remember, I don't know where exactly, but I remember thinking, wow, this is awesome. You weren't even supposed to be here eight weeks ago. You didn't even know that you could run. It's awesome that you're still, you know, running really well and you're still with the pack. And one thing that really helped me when things got really, really hard actually was suspected as along the coast. There were so many of them and cheering and they were like, go, Alvin, go, go Zoe's mom. And mm. I think when I heard people say, say go Zoe's mom, I smiled. And I think that smile made me forget that I was running a marathon. And then they were like a section where I would see kids and like they were cheering so hard and it gave me so much happiness. And honestly, I think like I was triple charged, like, because I felt like there was a time where I was beginning to feel sorry for myself. But then once I saw people cheering and saying, go Alfin, go so his mom, and then seeing these little kids like dancing and like cheering for me, I got like a lot of energy that I don't know where it came from. And I started getting back to, you know, like to the splits that I was like decent splits that I was running before that. Yeah. I mean, I really think that there's something super special about New York's course like compared to any other course because of that reason. Like I think we run faster because of the crowds. There's just no way, like there's no way you can't feed off that energy. Absolutely. Goodness. Like, I mean, like when I ran New York in 2019 was actually the first time that I realized that the crowds were so good. And granted, I have not run, you know, like a lot of uh, marathons, a lot of world major marathons. But like before my 2019, in 2019, the beginning of 19, I ran, um, you know, Rotterdam Marathon. And I didn't think the spectators were as amazing as New York. And I mean, they were good, but it's just like when I ran New York 19, I was like, wow, they spectators almost everywhere on the coast. And then thinking about the, you know, like Atlanta trials, they were amazing. Mm -hmm. They were just, you know, it was almost like, if you are somebody who doesn't feed off uh, Spectre as well, it might have been to your detriment. And then even running New York this year, it was like, there was, I felt like there was more Spectre than I, that I remembered. So it was really, really nice. It was nice to have those Spectre. And honestly, they brought me home. I'm so grateful for them because I'm like, you got up and you went and watched the race and cheered so hard for us. Even though I was back in seventh place, you know, you still cheered for me like I was winning. That was awesome. You're so right, though, because I do think some people struggle with that. Like, it's overwhelming. It's like sensory overload almost. Like, it's too much to take in while you're yeah. trying to focus and run a marathon. Exactly. And, I mean, for somebody who is an extrovert like myself, I think I feed off of that mm -hmm. so much. Like, I remember, for example, two days before New York City Marathon, you know, they had the opening ceremony. And two years ago or three years ago in 2019, you know, I was requested to go do that and I had so much fun I was like dancing and you know like having a lot of fun that I requested to be at the opening ceremony this year because I was like it was just so much fun and I'm like I know that it's not going to take away from the fact that in two days I have to be running a marathon I'm like I just get so like I just get a lot of joy and happiness from being out there and having fun that it was just it was I wanted to be there yeah there's that uh, people are going to hate that I say this word balance, but there is this balance of like, you know, enjoying that, taking a little bit of the pressure off to enjoy that moment. And then also get your game face on and do what you set out to do. Yeah, no, I think for me, I definitely feed off of the fun and the crowds and, you know, like someone else, especially maybe introverts, they might not do so well with that. So, I, you know, when, when talking to people going into this next year, it's like, okay, everything you do next year has to be in strategy for the 2023 trials, which by the way, how are you feeling about the Orlando announcement? Um, well, one, I was relieved that it was finally announced and two, I was like, oh, I wish it was later, you know, um, mm. like maybe in the beginning of March or at the end of February, like the 2020 trials. However, you know, I think that I'm just excited that 
I was able to run a marathon in New York in hot conditions, and I did well. And, you know, I still have an opportunity to run another marathon, hopefully in the spring, to get ready because, again, I feel like I'm rusty. And, yeah, you know, I'm excited because I really would like to make another Olympic team. So I'm excited. I think it's a bigger um, um, feeling that I have. So when you strategize next year, it feels right to do spring no fall and go into February because it's so early in February too. It's like if you did a fall, that'd be so, so much. You know, I wouldn't say that there will be no fall. Uh, I know for sure that as long as I'm healthy, there will definitely be a spring marathon, but I'm not counting out a fall marathon either because, you know, like again, I had five weeks of training and I turned around and had a good race in New York. So it's not saying that I won't be able to do a fall marathon and do well, but I will also say this, you know, um, as a professional runner who is getting older, it's like, I don't know how many more marathons I'm still going to be able to do. This is my job. This is how I make my living. And so it's like the Olympics or Olympic trials is the one thing that we all, you know, want to do. But at the same time, it's like, I don't want to put my uh, eggs on Mm. one basket. And again, this might come off as I don't care, but I really do care. And so it's like, I think for me, I am going to maximize, um, you know, both my earning potential and what makes sense in terms of making the Olympic team. But I really do trust in myself that as long as I'm healthy, I could still do a fall marathon and come out the other side and uh, still be ready for, um, you know, a February, early February trial. So I'm not counting out um, running a fall marathon, but at this point in time, I think my coaches and my support crew and I have decided that let's focus on a spring marathon and then see what happens or how we come off that spring marathon. Then we'll see what the rest of the year is like. I love that. Yeah. I mean, you remind me of, of your wonderful teammate, Steph, who, you know, has always had this message, at least in the last few years, like, I'm not hanging my hat on like, just making an Olympic team, like that being my main thing and like kind of viewing the career just so much more holistically, which makes it, to be quite honest, way more fun for us fans because we get to see you all compete more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's like, it's funny because you say that and Stephanie wrote something um, a couple of days ago and I responded. I said, you know what, Stephanie, again, like running is like a chapter in our books. You have done so many Mm. things. You have being one of the athletes that has shown us that you can pursue multiple goals at once and still be successful. It's like, if it makes you happy to pursue multiple goals, you could do that and be a happy human being and be a whole. You know, it's like, we don't just have to single-handedly follow one thing, but it doesn't mean that we are not passionate and we are not giving all our uh, attention to that thing that you're following at that particular time. And so I think for me, it's like, I want to be open-minded, you know, and I have a daughter and I want to make a good future for her. And so whatever that means, I am going to follow that, you know, like in discussion with my uh, my group or my, my support system, my coaches, my managers will decide what will be best for me. Mm, so good, Alphine. Um, I guess we'll wrap up here. You're so fun to talk to, though. I don't want to, but we will. <laughs> <laughs> well, I talk a lot, so that's, Let's just get that out there. (laughs) It's so fun, though. Um, And especially, it just gets more fun when I've been able to interview someone, like, repeatedly. So it's like to get to piece your story together and and see where you were then versus now and kind of watch it from afar and then get to talk is just, it's it truly is a gift to me. Well, it's a gift to me to, to be able to tell my story and in hopes that, you know, you can they can weed out the parts of me where it comes off as oh she's not very serious and really get the message that I'm trying to deliver. Yes, you do it well. Uh, what's your biggest takeaway from New York? Um, you know, I think it might have been the first time that I actually put myself in the race and I wasn't afraid to go with the pack when they did. Um, I don't know if you will notice or you notice this, but like um, at around mile seven to eight this uh, Linden took off and I was like, I am not going to let her go because I remember in last year, I believe when, or maybe even two years ago when this took off and the pack let her go. But in order to catch her, they had to run some crazy splits and that broke everybody down. And I knew that I didn't have the speed it took to catch somebody who is already two minutes ahead of us. I was like, 
I am going to take this time before she's too far and I'm going to, you know, chase her down and run with her. And even if, if the pack doesn't want to come with us, well, then they will have to suffer later because if I were to run just me and Des, we are definitely going to run really, really well. And I think also that's what happened when Meb won Boston. It's like him and mm. uh, one of the guys ran away and everybody thought, oh, they were probably going to come back. And in, later on, they had to run really fast. And so I think my takeaway was that I was very bold and I wanted to go with the most. I, wa I was willing to take risks, even though I knew that I wasn't as fit as I wanted to be. But I was willing to see how far and how fast I can go with taking bigger risks that I have ever taken. And also, like, when the pack left me, I had to reframe my race and run my own race. And in that moment, I actually told myself that I was winning. I pretended like I was winning the race and I fed off of the crowd and like they were cheering me. And I'm like, I'm winning. And it's like when you're winning a race, you don't you don't feel sorry for yourself. And so I forgot the fact, or like I tried to intentionally forget the fact that there were six women already ahead of me and just pretended that or tricked my mind into thinking that I was winning. And that helped me stay on course. That's so good. What a fun way to view the race. Like you got to get to the finish line and you want to get there as hard as you can. And if that vis visualization helps you do that, beautiful. That's beautiful. For sure. Okay, well, last message to leave with our audience, whether it be about pursuing goals or motherhood or whatever it is, what do you want to tell people? I think, you know, I want people to believe in themselves, but most importantly, do what makes you happy. Remember that your job and everything else uh, or like something that is not family related doesn't really matter in the, in the end. I feel like as I get older, I realize that it's the people in my life that matter the most. It's the relationship, the relationships that you create along the way that matter the most. And so it doesn't really matter how financially stable you are, how good your job is, or like, it's like you can be replaced at work, but you cannot be replaced by your family or by your close friends that matter the most to you. And so I would definitely say that Cultivate those relationships that matter. Do things that make you happy. Don't do things just because it makes somebody else happy. In the end, it's your happiness that matters. And for that, it's like as a professional athlete, you know, I'm always, you know, like trying to focus on winning to make my team proud, you know, to make my country proud. But it's what I'm doing making me happy because when I retire from this sport, which for me is going to come sooner than later, who am I? Am I happy with the decisions that I made? For example, you know, like deciding to be a mom at the peak of my career. In that moment, I was like, is being a mom important? Is it going to make me happy? And what if I'm not able to come back into like uh, running at a high level? Will I be satisfied with that? And I had to answer those questions for myself. And it's like, as long as you make decisions based on what makes you happy, what makes your family happy? What makes them, the people that matter to you most happy and in harmony? I think it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to be okay. It's when you try to please other people, then you might end up in trouble. Mm. Do you remember, I don't know if you remember this, before the Olympic trials, I, I think I asked the question, what's your last message to leave with the audience? And you had a message to like young girls in your village because you talked about how you came from a really poor upbringing and how you would have never, you know, thought that this would be what your life is today. Do you remember that, talking about that? I do. And actually, I might even rephrase it as this. Um, when I was headed to the New York City Marathon start this uh, last weekend, I remember thinking like, you know, like, you know how, like, so we leave the hotel early in the morning and, you know, you're in a bus with, like, some of the fastest women in the world. And you're being escorted by police vehicles. And then it's like traffic is blocked so you can get mm. to the start line. And I remember thinking, I cannot believe that a girl like me, a girl who grew up in a very small village, a small marginalized village, is in this bus right now. What a privilege. Like, girls like me, you know, didn't even go to school, got pregnant young got married young and they would be grandmothers right now and they will have multiple children because they didn't really have the choices that I had. It was just beautiful. And so I would say definitely like, you know, when I think about that, I'm just so grateful for who I am and the opportunities that I have 
had. And I sure do hope that I can inspire girls from villages like mine, from countries like mine, you know, who grew up in the same life that I had, that, you know, you can, I'm hoping that they will get opportunities. And when they get those opportunities, I want them to be to remember that they can be whoever they want to be if they work hard and they choose to uh, believe in themselves and believe in good, because there is a lot of good out there. But I think we do need the opportunities to get to them. And I hope that, you know, as time goes by, more girls, especially in rural countries, in rural you know, villages, can get those opportunities like I did. And when they do, they can see that their opportunities and take advantage of that because I just cannot believe that I am where I am today. I cannot believe the life that I have versus where I grew up or how I grew up. It's unbelievable. It's like I have accomplished more than I could have ever asked for. And I will try not to settle yet and explore every opportunity that I have because, again, I know that there are so many people that don't have it. Alphine, you are a gift. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for letting me again tell my story. All right, everybody. Thanks for being here. So happy to have you along for this series. Go find Alephine on Instagram. She is Alephine on Instagram. I am lindsayhine626. I'd love to connect with you. I'm at lindsayhine on Twitter and Facebook. We have a great Facebook group and community. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. Join us over there to connect. Thanks for being here and we'll see you next time.